So, <coughs> well, welcome back. You see we're on a combination of Irish and Italian time. <laughs> Very, real, real failure, I'm afraid, Mirella. You haven't kept the timetable very well. Everything else is perfect, but you had difficult people to work with, you know. Good, let's just take a moment to gather ourselves. And uh, let's remember that, that prayer of Jesus that we read last night, the great prayer, which is a prayer of unity as well as being a prayer for unity, I think. It is not for these alone that I pray, but for those also who through their words put their faith in me. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, so also may they be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I mentioned Julian of Norwich uh, earlier and her insight into the mystery and the work of wanting that God is performing in the world through us. It is in this wanting that the life of all people exists. This is what unites us. The love of God, she goes on, creates in us such a wanting that when it is truly seen, no person can separate themselves from another person. That puts a bit more succinctly what I was saying earlier before lunch. That when we see this, and seeing it is the insight that changes us, not an idea only, but an experiential insight and touch of wisdom or taste of the truth. When we see this through the love of God, creating this oneing in us, then we cannot separate ourselves from others. We cannot see ourselves as separate from others. And that's why our meditation makes such a, a difference in the world, in the world of our immediate family, friends, and work, but also by extension. It says in the Book of Wisdom that the hope for the salvation of the world lies in the greatest number of wise people. That makes sense. But he doesn't say how many wise people, but more than we have now. But it suggests that, you know, we are, we are committed to, try to trying to build up to this critical mass. We may never get there in our lifetime or in this life, but that is, our, that is what gives meaning to our work, is that we are building up this, this redemptive level. And at this period in our history, with so many divisions and so much real or potential violence, uh, so much conflict, uh, it has never, never been more necessary that we build up a, a critical, contemplative, mass of contemplative consciousness. So this is looking to the, f 
to the future, but when we look to the future in this kind of vision, we also look back to the origin, to the source. This is something that comes through in the, in the, uh, the Indian concept, the Indian idea of the Purusha. The Purusha is a, rather, is, is a symbolic expression of the idea of a cosmic self or a cosmic person, sort of something like the Adam, uh, our biblical idea of Adam, the original person, Adam and Eve, the original person, and, but at the same time a cosmic person. So also uh, the, the Christian engaging with this concept of the Purusha can, can see something of the of a anticipation of the idea of the Christ, the Christ consciousness. And when we see the, the connection in the scriptures between the historical Jesus and the cosmic Christ, we, begin to, we can begin to see the, the richness of this ancient idea uh, of the Hindu tradition. We find it in the early Vedas, the sense or the picture of a, a cosmic person who was sanctified, uh, sacrificed by the gods in order to create life. So the word of God through whom all things came to be, we might parallel from our own scriptures, the beginning of John, and the word that was made flesh from uh, the word that existed from all time, the Purusha, if you like, who becomes flesh incarnate in, 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 in Jesus, but who is manifesting this eternal word. And it's this uh, int integration of Christian faith with, the, with the, the cosmic sense that I think allows us to work to today towards a, a new and more mystical kind of religious consciousness uh, in the world and is the underpinning of our work for interreligious dialogue. Dialogue is always an exploration. It's not coming just to a written agreement like the, a contract or a, a treaty. It's always an exploration, but it's in, I think, today especially in our world, this work of dialogue conducted within a contemplative uh, consciousness, supported by meditation together. It's this work of, of dialogue, building bridges, seeing resonances between our different traditions, not looking for exact equations or exact correspondences, not reductionistic. But it's this dialogue that will allow us to, to build a new kind of religion in the world. The Purusha, like the Word of God, is the indestructible, essential principle of being in all things. This is what unites us. This is the unity of the human. Splendid and without a bodily form, the, the Vedas or the Mundaka Upanishad says. Splendid, glorious. And without a bodily form is this Purusha. Without and within, unborn. With life and breath higher than the supreme element. 
From him are born life, breath, and mind. He is the soul of all beings. So here is the, the Logos, what St. Paul calls the Logos, the eternal word who is with God from the, is with, from the beginning and is God. Not exactly the same, but these are different languages and different symbolic expressions. But clearly, I think, with a listening mind, we can see the resonance between them. And for us, <clears throat> when this gives us a deeper understanding of the, of the meaning of Christian faith and of the role of Christian faith in bringing about the unity of human beings, then this is, this is a great gift for us, this dialogue with other traditions. And it allows us to make sense of some of the great passages in Scripture that we often read, but without fully feeling the force of their, <coughs> of their um, impact. It is through faith that you are all children of God in union with Christ Jesus. Baptized into union with him, you have all put on Christ like a garment, all. There is no such thing as Jew or Greek, slave and freeman, male and female. In Christ, let's put it in the other translation, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. That, in, in his language, was as much of a polarity as you could imagine, Jew and Greek. Let's put it in more contem contemporary terms. In him, in Christ, there is no such thing as Muslim or Christian or Jew or Hindu or Buddhist or Catholic or Protestant or Mahayana or Theravada or Orthodox Jew or liberal Jew and so on and so on. There's no such thing as Jew and Greek slave or free, so rich or poor, educated or uneducated, those on the right side of the tracks, those on the other side of the tracks, male or female, well, with our gender consciousness today, that, that speaks to us as well. But uh, what, what more fundamental, so we think, what more fundamental uh, duality is there than that between male and female. So in this person who is the embodiment of primordial unity as well as the force that unifies us today with all our divisions and violence, in this primordial unit person of unity, this all of these these categories are recast. He says they don't exist, but we might say they exist in convenient. Uh, they have a convenient existence or a temporary existence. They're, they're useful for as long as they last, but they're not absolute distinctions, and therefore they shouldn't be treated as divisions. Well, this is a radical new program for human society, and 
it's, uh, it requires, and, and it's one that is, should be, if everybody accepted this, it would be something wrong in it, because it is offensive to the, to the dualistic mind, to the fundamentalist mind. This is, this is blasphemous. This is really subversive. This is definitely liberal. You can't even say that in Australia, I don't know. Because, and this is, the, this is the explanation, because you are all one person in Christ. All. The Christ is not Jesus only. The Word of God existed before the Incarnation. Incarnation is, by its definition, historical. December the 25th, year zero. So in that sense, as the early Christian thinkers realized, the Christian who sees Jesus as the unique incarnation of the world, word, the embodiment of the Word of God, can also see the Word, the same pre-existent Logos. We can see the Word in Greek wisdom, in the Vedas, uh, in the Old Testament, in Confucius, wherever wisdom has manifested itself in every tradition. That's why at the time of the Vatican Council, when there was this outpouring of the Spirit that upset so many people, uh, we, we, we read that the Church rejects nothing that is true and holy in other religions. Can't underestimate what a, what a dramatic uh, statement that was, one that contradicted centuries of Catholic fundamentalism. We are the only way. We have the whole truth. Now, there's something true and holy in other religions, and we don't reject it. And this is what Clement of Alexandria in the second century was saying when he, he, he canonized uh, the Buddha as Saint Jeho Jehoshaphat. This is what they would do when they recognized the source of wisdom. They would just call them saint. And they didn't have birth certificates or Google searches, so the sense of history was a little looser. But the, uh, the, the, the insight is the same, that the primordial unity is present and active now and allows us to relate to any outpouring of wisdom or any manifestation of the divine <coughs> without a sense of competition or exclusivity. So in Christian faith, the Christ is not Jesus only, but Jesus is the Christ. And in knowing Jesus, we know the unity of God with all things, the unity of all that is different everything that is different from each other, male or female, Jew or Greek, enjoys this fundamental unity. And those who see this from their own experience, they are the wise who will save the world.
because they are the ones who will reconcile the divided. And that means each of us following our own daily path of meditation. Just as St. Anthony of the Desert went into a cave or into a, 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 a fort in the middle of the desert for 25 years and lived on bread and water. And after 20 or so years, his friends came and said, well, that's enough. We better open up the cave and see where, if he's gone completely crazy or whether he's dead. And when they broke down the walls, he was walking towards them. This is symbolic, I imagine. He was walking towards them. And they noticed that he was in great condition. You look great, they would have said. You look really well after 25 years of bread and water. He was neither too fat nor too thin. He had a beautiful complexion. Uh, the only problem was his teeth, because he'd been eating too much dry bread and it had ground down his teeth. Apart from that, he was in the peak of health. And he spoke to them with clarity and reasonableness. This is the fruit of asceticism. This is the, these are the benefits of a spiritual discipline. Integration, body, mind, and spirit. And then he lived for a long time. He was, I don't know what he was then, about 50. I think he went in when he was 35. So I say in his 50s, and he lived for another 30 years. So the, for the rest of his life, what did he do? He didn't write his memoirs. For the rest of his life, he devoted himself to healing the sick, comforting the sorrowful, and uniting the divided, reconciling the divided. So these are the fruits of contemplation. This is how life changes in this work of oneing that we are involved in and that it's our gift to be able to share with others. To know this means to see it, not just intellectually, not just as a dogma or as a philosophical idea, but contemplatively, an insight that, as John Mayne says, verifies the, the, the truth of your faith in your own experience. It verifies the truth of your faith in your own experience. And just to look briefly at one other uh, tradition, just to try to put this Christian understanding into its global context. <clears throat> In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a, a stream of wisdom called the, the way of Dojin, or the Great Perfection. And it's characterized by the idea that it is possible to get enlightened in one lifetime. It comes rather closer to the Christian idea. Otherwise, you have to do like three billion lifetimes before you even get started. But in Dojin, there's this idea of it's possible for us to be 
liberated in one lifetime. One of the great texts of this tradition is self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness. Naked awareness. Naked awareness, which means discovering and remaining in this primordial state, to returning, as it were, to our original source or nature, as we would say. And as the mind, even among those Tibetans, worked with in, in threes, they have three elements of this primordial state of Dojin. Essence, which is purity of mind, clarity and purity, and the great Buddhist virtue of emptiness, which is for us poverty of spirit, being non-attached, being able to let go, the opposite of the fundamentalist mind. The second is nature, being natural, with luminous clarity and spontaneous presence. So again, I think, and the third is compassion, to have a knowledge of the imminent presence of the ground of being in all appearances. Now, if we translate those into daily life, we would see this happening in our interactions like Jim the Marine. And each of us, in the circumstances of our daily lives and, and living out our particular calling, that we are, we are purifying our heart through our daily meditation. And we're practicing poverty of spirit as we come back to it every day. And in so doing, we are recovering, uh, returning to our natural source and our own nature as, as a living icon of living image of the, of the divine, of the creator. Freeing us from fear and therefore giving us spontaneity and the courage to love. And also we, we find in the Christian understanding of this transformation, uh, the gift of compassion, the great principle of the gospel, that we intuitively and naturally respond lovingly and generously to those in need without having to think twice about it. Any, in, and, and as those three elements, which could be reflected in the life of the Trinity, those three elements grow and combine and interact in this, our process of transformation, we change and we become forces of change in the world. Naked awareness. In the Cloud of Unknowing, he says that at a certain point, a certain level of practice in the journey of meditation, we will hit this level of a naked awareness of ourself. And this image of nakedness is often used in the mystical tradition to describe the state we have to be in as we, as we make contact, as we encounter at deepening levels, 
the mystery of our source, the mystery of God through the, through the spirit and the mind of Christ. And this, uh, this image of nakedness is that we are not, we are not uh, using any sort of garments, psychological or ideological or philosophical or theological or any kind of uh, dressing up It, to uh, present ourselves or represent ourselves to our source, because how do we how do we pretend to be something that we're not or something that we think we should be to God? Doesn't make sense. You know, it's like pretending to your parents that you are not their, their child, who has known you since you were a squalling infant. And that, that nakedness, that naked awareness, is challenging for us when we start to meditate because we've got so dressed up in our different roles and our different ego images, it's, it's difficult for us to let go. But as we do, as we take off these layers of artificial or representational identity, we discover who we truly are. And it's not such a bad person after all. And the more we allow ourselves to be naked in the presence of God in, in those times of meditation, they're like times you go into the shower. You don't go into the shower wearing your jacket or your monastic habit or your favorite dress. Uh, when, when we, uh, times that we go in and we are ourselves, we're simply who we are, that unified being that receives the gift of being from our source. And that simple, that's why we call meditation simple, not easy, but it, but it becomes easier as you realize what a gift it is. <laughs>